This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Is Roberts the most powerful man in controlling the future of America? Yes, unquestionably. John Roberts is the swing vote of the United States Supreme Court, which is the most powerful court in any country and the most powerful it's ever been in history. He decides what the law is. The Supreme Court is super weird. Nine people in robes hidden away in a secret chamber, making decisions based on their interpretations of a grammatically confusing document written more than 200 years ago, our Constitution. Everyone on the court is appointed for life and will likely serve longer than any congressman or senator. I know in past episodes, I've promised you, there is no Illuminati. But the United States Supreme Court is about as close as it gets. And who's in charge? Who is Chief Justice John Roberts? I'm Sean Morrow. Welcome to Who Is from Now This, a podcast where we explore the past and present of the most powerful people in Washington and beyond, the people molding our world and determining our destiny through interviews with folks who've known or have followed them for years. This week, we're talking about Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts. If you close your eyes, can you picture him? Can you hear his voice? What's he like? You might have seen him during his confirmation hearings over a dozen years ago, or when he swore in President Trump or Obama at their inaugurations. But other than that, nothing, right? The guy is almost invisible, which is weird because he's arguably the man who will have the biggest impact on our democracy over the next few decades. And that started a long time ago. Here's Amy Howe, a lawyer who argued cases in front of the Supreme Court and founded SCOTUS Blog, a premier outlet covering the court. John Roberts is somebody who was at the top of his class in high school, in college, in law school, clerked on the Supreme Court. He's clearly very, very smart and also sharp in the sense of bright and clever and funny. Roberts was born in New York, but raised in Long Beach, Indiana. While the Roberts weren't like the 1% or anything, they weren't poor either. His father was a major steel executive. They had a bunch of money. Roberts excelled in school. He was a very, very smart guy. He checked off all the extracurricular boxes, and he learned Latin, seemingly for fun. This was all good enough to get him into Harvard, where he skipped his freshman year. He'd stay on at Harvard for law school. In Roberts' writings, he praised legal thinkers who simply analyzed the law, rather than those that let political opinions get in the way. An analyst who reflected on Roberts' younger years said, What I've read provides little cause to regard Roberts as especially right-wing or ideological. Roberts graduated and got a few prestigious clerking roles, including one with William Rehnquist, who would become Chief Justice. Here's Dahlia Lithwick, a legal reporter at Slate who has covered the Supreme Court for nearly 20 years and has also practiced law. 
He clerked for William Rehnquist, Mm -hmm. who was a chief justice, very much in that model. Rehnquist was a person who, when he was just an associate justice, one of the nine, really tended to throw elbows and was quite, for instance, his dissents could be pretty intense. And then when he got elevated to the chief, he became a different person. He really saw himself as having to protect the integrity and the dignity of the court. And that philosophy has followed Roberts or at least it's followed what he pushes as the public perception of himself. After clerking, he went into defending the little guy. Giant corporations. Did you think I was serious? Obviously. Roberts went into private practice and he worked in corporate law. And that truly helped mold his political philosophy. Here is Mark Joseph Stern, who reports on the courts for Slate. He just published a book, American Justice 2019. The Roberts Court arrives. I do think that he is steeped in corporate legal culture. And I think that's part of the Roberts problem, that he worked as a corporate lawyer. He sides with corporations all the time. It's not because the corporations are giving him kickbacks, but it's because he thinks, hey, forced arbitration, that's awesome. That's groovy. (laughs) You know, let's spare corporations these frivolous lawsuits that are holding them down, you know, unleash their economic potential. He really sort of buys the Koch brothers party line on free enterprise. That one phrase, forced arbitration, maybe jumped out at you. Spoiler warning, he's going to jump to the future a bit and spill the Supreme Court beans on how this almost definitely affected your life directly already. There's this law from nearly a century ago. Right that has this very vague language about how basically when two businesses are in a dispute, that if one of them has said, we want to go to arbitration and the other has agreed, then they have to go into arbitration. And that means they aren't going before a federal judge, right? They aren't going into a courthouse. There's a guy sitting at a table between them and they work out their differences, right? Right. That law was fine. It was meant to sort of speed up business negotiations. John Roberts and his conservative colleagues have reinterpreted that law to mean that anytime a corporation or an employer or anyone puts a forced arbitration clause in a contract and somebody signs it, that it's binding permanently and forever and there's no way around it. Okay. And not only that, but states can't enact their own laws protecting people against forced arbitration clauses. So when you buy a cell phone or when you sign your employment contract or whatever, I guarantee you, unless you're unionized or something like that, I guarantee you there will be a little clause in there that says, by the way, by buying this cell phone or joining this company, you have fully surrendered your right to sue. You don't get to sue. You have to go before an arbitrator that we choose. It's going to be someone who favors the company. It's probably going to be in Delaware because the laws there favor the company. You're going to have to pay your own way and your ability to reap actual monetary rewards is going to be severely limited. That has screwed over over millions of people, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Americans. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Roberts' work in corporate law brought him before the body he would one day sit on himself, the Supreme Court. He argued before the Supreme Court for many years before he became a judge and was regarded as one of the best 
Supreme Court lawyers of his generation. Some of those cases included arguing against a Native American tribe who wanted to collect taxes for business done on their land. He lost. He argued that the NCAA shouldn't be liable for federal gender discrimination laws pertaining to public colleges, even though they're funded, in part, by public colleges. He won. And he represented Toyota against a disabled employee to help redefine what disability means with regards to employment protection. He won. He also worked cases pro bono, as required by his firm, some of which fought for welfare recipients and LGBTQ plus rights. After his time in private practice, he caught the eye of the George W. Bush administration. He was nominated for a district court position, got the job, and after only two years in that role, was nominated for an open associate justice of the Supreme Court seat. John Roberts never was an associate justice. He came straight onto the court and then simply because Sandra Day O'Connor left, William Rehnquist died, went from being nominated to be an associate justice, one of the nine, to the chief. And I think in an pretty interesting way. He never had a chance to just be one of the team. He was always the boss, and by the way, very much younger than many of them. And that, I think, has been fraught for him. The chief justice isn't the most senior justice or anything. It's an appointment like any other. Let's look a little further into what that means. What powers is the chief justice even granted? He is the chief justice of the United States. He's not the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's the chief justice of the entire United States, which means he sits at the head of the judiciary. And he has these sort of administrative functions. He oversees the lower courts in addition to his duties as a judge on the bench. He helps to sort of set ethical standards. He holds these conferences that brings all of the judges together from different lower courts. And he takes that role seriously. He sees himself as a figurehead of the entire federal judiciary, which he is. And so in his capacity as chief justice, he isn't just overseeing his own court. He isn't just, you know, timing oral arguments and assigning opinions. He's also trying to sort of exert his influence and power as the guy who sits at the head of the so-called third branch, the judiciary. And there's some powers he's granted within SCOTUS as well. It also means he assigns opinions, which sounds like a trivial power. It's actually a very big power because it's a way you build coalitions on the court. Uh, But most of his power is that he is just the ninth of nine votes at the court. But he's also, in a deep way, I think the person who sees himself as the steward of the court, the person who, when everybody else is pulling hair and kicking and screaming, he's the one who's kind of doing sober gravitas. I'm going to make sure that the court doesn't descend into rancor. He only has one vote, but as a swing vote, that vote is incredibly powerful. After Justice Anthony Kennedy retired, Justice Kennedy was famously the center of a very polarized 4-4 court. When Justice Kennedy left the court and famously is replaced by Brett Kavanaugh, John Roberts becomes the de facto swing vote. Before Kennedy, that had been Sandra Day O'Connor, then it's Kennedy, now it's John Roberts. And I think if you sit with that, it's kind of a preposterous notion because Anthony Kennedy was always in play. Mm -hmm. He was the one who defected and voted with the liberals on abortion. He was the one who defected and voted with the liberals on affirmative action. He was the one who defected famously and voted with the liberals on gay marriage. So he was genuinely a swing voter, even though he was a Republican and a, a conservative. He really was in play. Roberts is not in play. Roberts is 
without a doubt, a lifelong conservative who has voted with the conservative bloc in every single big ticket case you can think of, whether it's gutting the Voting Rights Act, uh, abortion, uh, uh, gay marriage. He's voted with the conservative bloc. Roberts is totally partisan. I think that he is very conservative. He came up in the conservative legal movement, and he still holds all of those conservative ideologies. When, say, Congress decides to restrict how much corporations can spend on elections, which is something Congress has done for more than a century, and it was pretty well-settled law at that point, John Roberts said, actually, I think free speech means that corporations have a right to electioneer with no limits. And that is a very contested interpretation of freedom of speech. Right there, he's talking about the Citizens United ruling. You've probably heard of it. Citizens United, a nonprofit organization that made political films, brought up a case with the Federal Election Commission regarding a documentary they made bashing Hillary Clinton. They wanted to air it on TV around election time in 2007. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge decision, one of the most important in all of Supreme Court history that says Congress doesn't get to limit the amount of money that corporations are spending to swing elections. Citizens United addressed a law that Congress passed to try to rein that in, to say, look, if you are a corporation, you can separate out your corporate funds into like a political arm of your business and you can spend them that way as much as you want. But if you're using your corporate money, if you're really just using this as like a business expense. You have limits. You can't spend X amount of money in a particular election cycle. You go beyond that, you are corrupting the election cycle. You are basically making candidates beholden to you because you're dropping so much money on them and you're drowning out the voices of everybody else, the voices of actual Americans. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You, you can't put any kind of limits on how corporations spend money in elections or how much corporations spend in elections because they have the freedom of speech to spend as much as they want. But Roberts specifically had a huge role in how it all turned out. This decision originally wouldn't have had the massive effect on our elections it's had if it weren't for Roberts. The history here is very interesting. When the court first heard Citizens United, it was resolving a very specific sort of technical dispute about whether the film in question fell into this particular statute. Right. And the court was prepared to issue a narrow five to four ruling with the conservatives on one side saying, well, we don't think this movie falls into that category. We think that this is a different kind of political speech, yada, yada. And it would have been a narrow decision. Uh, after the, the five conservatives decided to issue that ruling behind the scenes, Justice Anthony Kennedy circulated a separate concurring opinion that said, hey, we should go way farther than this. We should strike down this entire section of the law because corporations have a fundamental right to spend as much money as they want swinging elections. And John Roberts, once he saw that opinion and once right. other conservative justices started signing on to it, he sort of finagled this maneuver wherein instead of deciding the case on narrow grounds, the court put it over again for reconsideration on the broad question that Kennedy had raised of whether the entire law was unconstitutional. And then, of course, the court struck it down, yes. the entire law. So I know that's sort of technical and a little complex, but the basic upshot of this story is that Roberts was willing to reach out and grab a much broader legal dispute that was not before him in order to turn Citizens United into the decision 
that it ended up being. It was supposed to be narrow. Because Roberts was willing to reach out and grab this much bigger issue, it ended up being a totally sweeping decision that sort of demolished a huge part of our campaign finance law. And that ruling, of course, made the Republicans who confirmed him very happy. Corporate money in politics generally flows towards the right. The Chief Justice does sometimes interpret the Constitution very broadly and I think act kind of like a philosopher king saying what's best for the country. But he tends to step into that role when the ultimate result of his decision will be conservative, when it will help the Republican Party, when it will further conservative goals. When you see him ping around, it's a mistake to say, oh, maybe his vote is in play. Maybe he's really kind of soft on race issues. Maybe he's a little bit soft on executive power? No. What he did is look around and say, is this good for the court? Right. And when it's not good for the court, he will move. You hear the phrase playing three-dimensional chess. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, he, the Supreme Court can't reach out and decide issues. You know, they don't say like, okay, we're going to weigh in on abortion now. They have to wait for people to bring the issues to them. But, you know, I think he is a true believer in the conservative sense, particularly when it comes to issues like race. But I think he's also patient. So what exactly makes him so powerful? His power is important in two ways. Mm -hmm. He only has one vote. Right. But on the other hand, he does have an ability to steer the court and to try to persuade his members. And I think that The other justices respect him, and several of them, I think, would be willing to try to work with him to sort of forge consensus for sort of the institutional legitimacy of the court. But also because, I think much more simply, the Supreme Court this term and in the upcoming terms is going to be hearing cases involving issues that really do touch almost every aspect of our lives from employment discrimination Mm -hmm. protection for LGBTQ employees, gun rights, abortion, immigration, waiting in the wings are things like, you know, the ban on transgender military service members, affirmative action. The Supreme Court has always been powerful. It's the third branch of government. But as Mark Joseph Stern said earlier, The court is at the height of its power. It's never been more powerful. And Roberts is both the chief justice and wielder of the court's decisive swing vote. So how does he wield that vote? He is really on board with sweeping decisions that knock down decades of precedent and sort of insert the court's power into every state's and everyone's lives. And so, yes, I think if you look at how much power the court has under Roberts, it's probably never had more. This is a real high point, a zenith for the Supreme Court's power and authority. We talked about forced arbitration and Citizens United, but there's more. Here are two more that directly altered American democracy. Absolutely. And the one that really comes to mind is Shelby County versus Holder. This was a decision in 2013 about the Voting Rights Act, which is this vitally important piece of legislation passed in 1965 to sort of eradicate Jim Crow restrictions on voting rights. And one of the provisions, it's called preclearance, it was very simple. It basically said, look, if you're a state that has a history of voter suppression and you want to change your laws, your election laws, to basically make it more difficult to vote, you have to get approval from either 
of the attorney general or a federal court before you do that, because we don't trust you. You've sort of lost the right to be trusted. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that functioned extremely well for a really long time and prevented the southern states from all of this sort of chicanery involving voter suppression. In 2013, Chief Justice John Roberts authored a five to four decision striking down, nullifying preclearance, basically saying states have equal sovereignty, which is a kind of made up principle, and that the government can't treat Alabama differently from California, and instantly freed a bunch of states from this federal oversight. Within 24 hours, North Carolina had passed an omnibus voter suppression law that demanded all kinds of particular IDs that slashed early voting. Texas started enforcing its draconian voter ID law that allowed you to vote with a gun permit, but not with a student ID. Today, in 2019, we've seen more than a thousand poll closures in states that were previously covered by the Voting Rights Act. We've seen all kinds of cuts to early voting, new restrictions on absentee ballots. This has really changed how Americans vote or do not vote. I mean, Shelby County unleashed the modern wave of voter suppression that is aimed at preventing minorities from casting a ballot. Um, and that has really, I think, altered democracy. I think that last spring, what it meant for America is in the two monster cases that came down. The first monster case being the Shelby County case that Mark discussed earlier. One was essentially blessing gerrymandering in the states and saying there's nothing the courts can do anymore. States can gerrymander away. That was horrible for America. He voted with the conservative bloc to essentially say that states that want to gerrymander minority parties out of existence are free to do that. That's incredibly consequential for America. I think you can say in some sense that will put a heavy, heavy, heavy thumb on the scale of equal voting for our foreseeable lifetimes. Both of those cases went Robert's way, but he dissented in some hugely historical cases, like Obergefell v. Hodges, which brought marriage equality to all 50 states. Here's some of his reasoning from his dissent. Quote, Today, however, the court takes the extraordinary step of ordering every state to license and recognize same-sex marriage. Many people will rejoice at this decision, and I begrudge none their celebration. But for those who believe in a government of laws, not of men, the majority's approach is deeply disheartening. Supporters of same-sex marriage have achieved considerable success persuading their fellow citizens, through the democratic process, to adopt their view. That ends today. Five lawyers, that's Roberts talking about the Supreme Court justices who voted for marriage equality, have closed the debate and enacted their own vision of marriage as a matter of constitutional law. As a result, the court invalidates the marriage laws of more than half the states and orders the transformation of a social institution that has formed the basis of human society for millennia. For the Kalahari Bushmen and the Han Chinese, the Carthaginians and the Aztecs. Yes, he cites the Aztecs, the same folks who carved giant stone jaguars called Quaxacacali to store the cut-out hearts of human sacrifices. Juxtapose Robert's feelings on the rights of LGBTQ plus Americans with his support for the free speech rights of corporations. That has a really big impact for millions and millions of people, including me. You know, the only reason my marriage is valid in every state is because of the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell. So it's difficult to sort of preach judicial restraint um, and say, oh, well, you know, Citizens United is bad because the Supreme Court shouldn't be deciding decisions this broadly. John Roberts will give conservatives 
almost everything they want. He will give Republicans almost everything they want. But from time to time, he will inch toward the center and sort of give a few breadcrumbs to liberals. And liberals, in turn, will kiss his feet Mm -hmm. and thank him for his generosity. Let's try to get into his head. What does John Roberts need to maintain the court's institutional legitimacy but side with the conservatives? If you want to understand how Roberts operates, he cast the fifth vote with the liberals, blocking the Trump administration's attempt to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census and essentially accused the Trump administration of lying about its reasons for adding that question, which is correct because it did lie. Like, it's almost indisputable that the administration lied. And that's a good example of the chief saying, look, I think that Republicans can basically do whatever they want most of the time. You know, I'm sure the chief justice thinks that in theory, the government can add a citizenship question to the census. But he looked at how the administration did it, and it was so shoddy, and it was so embarrassing, and so mired in bad faith that he had to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not willing to pretend that this was all done in good faith. I'm not willing to ignore the evidence before my eyes. Many people saw the addition of a citizenship question to the census as an attempt to discourage the participation of undocumented Americans, many of whom live in cities, which tend to vote for Democrats. In an age when deportation is a real and serious threat, it's easy to see how people might find a question like that intimidating, a link between their immigration status and their place of residence. A census undercount would result in less representation. Cities would lose reps in Congress and receive less federal money. The only reason Roberts didn't side with the conservatives was that the reasoning of the Justice Department was, in Mark's words, shoddy and embarrassing. Roberts also voted against the party that nominated and confirmed him on the Affordable Care Act. But that might have been part of the long game. One of the reasons I think he was willing to jump over and vote with the liberals on Obamacare is that the Affordable Care Act is not something that he cared about that much. And in fact, it was good for big business. It was good for insurance companies. And so why was he going to die on that hill? I think the same is true of the census question. That was a bonkers Hail Mary. It wasn't going to necessarily change the constitutional landscape. You can be super strategic about doing things in small ways, anticipating doing them in big ways. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think people miss most frequently with John Roberts is that Citizens United didn't come out of nowhere. That's a case that was teed up by a case a couple of years earlier, and it opened the door for the court to do Citizens United. So the way I've come to describe it is John Roberts is the master of doing it small, and then doing it big. So what might Roberts be teeing up for the future? If he has a long game, what is it? He doesn't have to do abortion big. He can do effectively the end of Roe v. Wade, not by taking this crazy pants, Alabama, Georgia, six-week bans that end abortion and put women in jail and put their doctors in jail. That's bonkers. If he did that, people would be, you know, pitchforks and flaming torches. And that would be, in November, the reason they voted Trump out. So what he'll, he'll do, I think, is take this case, the abortion case they took, which is just about, you know, an admitting privileges law. It's only going to affect Louisiana. It's going to take three clinics in Louisiana and change it to one. It's going to be under the guise of, we just want doctors to help women make good choices and have healthier, safer abortions. And America's going to look around and say like, well, that seems reasonable. 
the practical effect is the same, right? This is not all that different from taking the Alabama case and saying every woman who tries to have an abortion at six weeks goes to jail. But why do it ugly when you can do it pretty? And I think that is the thing to watch, is John Roberts doing, without a doubt, incredibly conservative outcomes will be effectuated, but doing it in ways that we don't know what's happening and by the way, at the end of the term last year, because John Roberts didn't do the crazy pants thing in the census case, four months later, the court's public opinion is bounced back and everyone is saying, what a moderate, generous guy, right. even though he ended <laughs> judicial oversight over gerrymandering. So that's the sort of genius, the sly genius of John Roberts. There's another case involving New York City about whether you can take your gun out of your house to go to your second home to travel to some other state or some other county. The court's probably going to use that case to take the right to bear arms out of the home for the first time. That starts you down the road to public carry, right? As soon as you start saying there's a right to carry your gun around, you know, you start by saying, sure, you can take it to your second home. You end by saying you can take it anywhere. Those cases are right at the forefront of Robert's mind because, you know, if the court issues a really sweeping decision on the Second Amendment, again, like states can't get around that. They're stuck with that decision. And Robert's, I think, is sort of maybe lukewarm on guns. I don't know that he wants to turn our entire country into a battleground. Right, like everywhere in America looking like one of those chilies in Alabama where exactly. everyone has their gun on their back for no reason. Exactly. So what I think it means for America in a really kind of scary way, if you want to just be blunt about it, is that there's one guy who's 64 with a lifetime appointment who is more or less given himself or been given monarchic powers <laughs> to decide basic fundamental rights, decide what the Constitution means. And I think it's probably fair to say that when the framers designed an Article Three judiciary, it wasn't with the idea that there would just be one person right. who would hold the future of, if you look at this term, the future of abortion rights, the future of LGBTQ protections, the future of gun rights in America, whether dreamers, 800,000 dreamers, are in fact going to be deprioritized for deportation, all of that could be in the hands of one guy. That doesn't feel like yeah. constitutional democracy to me. That feels like a little bit 15th century, but that's where we are. It's we the people, not John Roberts the people. Yeah, and also, and this really goes to your very first question, but I think it's important, not John Roberts the people, and also not John Roberts putting his finger in the wind and saying, which John Roberts am I going to be today? This brings us to Robert's relationship with two-time Teen Choice Awards nominee and President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. So, I think that John Roberts hates Donald Trump. Okay. In fact, I'm fairly certain. Yes. Um, he just bristles with contempt at right. Trump's attacks on the judiciary. Roberts issued this incredible statement last year talking about how there weren't Obama judges and Trump judges complaining directly about how the president was politicizing the judiciary. Right. And I think that for Roberts— it has put him in a difficult position because he still believes in the Republican Party. He still believes in conservative goals, the movement's goals, if you will. But he hates the current president. And he right. also sees the conservative movement falling over itself to get in line behind the president. And he sees Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch also lining up behind the president. I mean, they voted with Trump in the census citizenship case. That's really embarrassing, I think. Roberts is being very careful about how far he moves to the right under Trump and how far he moves to the right with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the bench. I don't think he views his 
role is primarily political, but he's aware of the political valence of so many of these cases. And so he is trying or has been trying to kind of take it slow. That's going to be really tough this term because there are so many blockbusters on the docket and they're all going to come down in June of 2020 in the middle of the presidential election. And I think that's going to be a kind of make or break point for Democrats in the court. I think uh, at the end of June 2020, whoever is the Democratic nominee, you're probably going to see her or him endorsing court packing because it's going to be such a bloodbath for the left. When John Roberts at night is flossing, like that's when he's freaking out yeah. because he understands the fundamental rule of the courts. This is right. This goes back to the Federalist Papers. The courts have neither the power of the purse nor the sword. The only authority judges have is that people believe that they're above the law. Congress could turn the lights off in the Supreme Court tomorrow and that'd be the end of it. In the 2016 election, we had a vacancy at the Supreme Court. That seat was held open from February until November. How many people went to the polls and said, holy cow, there's an empty seat at the Supreme Court. There is an 83-year-old, a 79-year-old, and a 78-year-old on the court. And if I do nothing else in this election, I should pull the lever for somebody who's going to care about the composition of the court. People didn't. They just didn't. And by the way, by a two to one margin, people who did pull the lever saying the court is the only thing I care about broke for Donald Trump. So I think the real answer to your question is there are a lot of progressives and liberals who say they care about environmental protection. They care about gay rights. They care about women's rights. They care about abortion. They care about labor rights. But then when it comes time to go and pull the lever, they're like, hmm, I wonder who my president is that has nothing to do with the composition of the court. And I think when you had three 80-year-olds in a vacancy, well, that is, you have now asked, like, when I set myself on fire every night ritually at 11 o'clock, you know, since the Merrick Garland vacancy, this has been the question I asked myself. Back to Amy Howe. It actually has always been a little bit of a mystery to me why Democrats have not rallied around judges the way that Republicans and conservatives have. You saw it certainly in the 2016 election where the seat that was open after the death of Justice Scalia hinged so clearly by the time the presidential election rolled around in November 2016 on the outcome of the presidential election. You know, the Supreme Court and judges are also an issue that you should think about. I think that there's almost nothing about the way we live life today Mm -hmm. that isn't in some way implicated by a court decision. It's a strange thing because you have to triangulate against these ephemeral decisions that happen in the sky. And then you think, really, does this affect me? And then you realize actually on questions of environmental protection, on questions of workers' rights, on questions of do you live in a state that only has one abortion clinic serving the entire state? The court affects everything. I don't know about you guys, but I personally care about stuff that's included in everything. So who is John Roberts? Is there a personal anecdote, something that you've heard that might not be on the public record? Something about who he is as a man? Um, 
Oh, gosh. Well, so I guess one interesting thing is watching him during oral arguments, yeah. the, the way that he operates. And one thing that I found kind of amusing is that sometimes when Justice Scalia was still on the bench, Justice Scalia was a bulldog, right? He would ask these really aggressive, sometimes sort of angry questions. He could be really sarcastic. He could be really mean. And sometimes when Scalia was in the middle of a rant, I would see the chief sort of grimace and almost like slump down in his chair a little bit. Yeah. And I thought that was funny because he and Scalia would almost always end up voting the same way in that case. Right. Like he agreed with Scalia, but the fact that Scalia was putting it out there in such a blatant and explicit way and maybe kind of like a cynical way, the sarcasm he used was so biting and cruel. Roberts found it embarrassing. Right. That is not his style. He does not want to tear down the advocate at arguments. He does not want to be the number one thing in the news because of what he said at arguments. He just wants to quietly cast his conservative votes and not draw too much ire or attention. But he should draw more attention. He's changing our country in big and permanent ways, ways that will long outlast his tenure, long outlast all the senators who confirmed him, the lawyers who've argued in front of him, those involved in each case, everyone. John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, may be the most powerful political figure in the United States for the foreseeable future, the next few decades. And that's great if his political views line up with yours, because his political views are certainly a big part of his court decisions. Before we wrap up, I had one super important thing to check with Mark on. If you were trying to set up a friend on a blind date with John Roberts, <laughs> how would you describe John Roberts to your friend? I would say he is extremely intelligent. He is very kind interpersonally. He's not one for small talk, but he is good at schmoozing when he needs to. And that I'm sure he would be an extremely committed partner. By all accounts, he's a wonderful husband and father to his wife and his children. And he would be great for anyone who doesn't care too much about politics or the law, <laughs> because otherwise you'd end up arguing with him a lot. Next week, we're switching sides, but sticking with legal scholars. We'll be unpacking the long life and dynamic career of Senator and Democratic candidate for president, Elizabeth Warren. Join me, Sean Morrow, next week for Who Is? A sincere thank you to our guests, Amy Howe, co-founder of SCOTUS Blog, who currently covers the Supreme Court at Howe on the Courts, Dahlia Lithwick of Slate, and host of the superb Amicus podcast, and Mark Joseph Stern, also of Slate and author of American Justice 2019, The Roberts Court Arrives. It just came out. Go buy it. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Emily Feld is coordinating producer and researcher. This episode was edited by Ernie Injerdat. Production support came from Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, and Pedro Elvira. David Zwick is supervising producer. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, and to Nico Brancolini. <laughs>